So we are back in the New Testament now. It's been a long journey through the Old Testament. Pastor Mike got to start in Mark because of Duluth weather, right? So just a little heads up, we're going to be in, in uh, Matthew today, John next week, and then Luke, we're going to preach out of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Some of you guys have noticed my vest. I can't have a suit on Easter Sunday and be it that shocking, so we got to kind of ramp up to things. <laughs> Uh, just a little bit of a family announcement. Uh, this next weekend is Palm Sunday, and we actually have a superior campus pastor candidate coming up. His name is Derek Stewart. And um, if you want to meet them, there's a couple opportunities for you to do so. Next week, he's going to be preaching at Superior. And so if you want to join uh, over at the brand new campus in Superior and listen to him, I'll try to not be offended. Um, <laughs> But that might be a great way to meet he and his wife, Rachel. Also, this Friday night, we have a prayer meeting, kind of capping off a day of prayer and fasting. They're going to be at that, and you can kind of interact with them and mingle with them at that. We would love to have you come. Uh, we're fasting on Friday, and then at, at 6.30 after the prayer meeting, we're going to eat together, because that's what we want to do after we fast. And so both we get to seek the Lord fervently, and then we get to celebrate his goodness together. So that's... What's coming up? This morning, we're in the book of Matthew, and we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then there'll just be a quick overview video of the book of Matthew. Would you join me? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the slightly warming weather, and we pray that those snow piles would leave by June. God, I don't know a better way to ask other than just to confess we all need to hear from you this morning. We've all battled temptation in our life. And as we see Jesus overcome it, I pray that it would fill us with hope. That he's our representative, that he's our savior. And that because he overcame temptation and sent the spirit, we can as well. And so Holy Spirit, would you speak this morning to every single person here, to every single person listening online through me or in spite of me, speak. We need to hear from you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Matthew was written by Jesus' apostle Matthew, sometime between 55 and 65 AD. Matthew set out to convince a mainly Jewish audience that Jesus is in fact the promised Messiah from the line of David. Throughout his account, Matthew points out specific connections to the Old Testament in order to communicate that Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the Messiah foretold by the prophets, Emmanuel, God with us. Crowds gather to see Jesus' miraculous healings and hear his contradictory message of what it looks like to follow him and live in God's kingdom, where the poor and wealthy alike are called to turn from their sin. Matthew presents Jesus as a figure greater than Moses, with authority to establish a new covenant with God's people. Jesus points to himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, yet his words and actions contradict the expectations of the people. He isn't a military victor or a conquering king, rather a humble teacher and suffering servant. The religious leaders find his claims blasphemous, and sentence Jesus to torture and death by crucifixion, demonstrating their complete misunderstanding of the prophesied Messiah. Three days later, Jesus conquers death, 
and calls his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, spreading the good news, Jesus' fulfillment of the law, bringing restoration to the shattered relationship between God and humanity through the forgiveness of sin. If you are a human being, you've experienced temptation. Temptation to do what you know you shouldn't do, to say what you know you shouldn't say, to think what you shouldn't think, to take what you know you shouldn't take. Whether you're just a little kid learning the difference between right and wrong, or, or someone living the last few years of your life, uh, you understand temptation. Should I copy the answers on this really hard chemistry test? Because I know the teacher isn't really looking or being all that diligent. Does it matter if I fudge the numbers on my taxes just a little bit? The government takes enough. Should I really watch that movie where I know there are things in it that I shouldn't view or see? See, temptation is real and it faces all of us, but faces all of us differently. And temptation is hard. Every one of us at some point in our life, probably even in the last week, has given in to temptation. We're not all tempted in the same way by the same things, but my guess is we've given into it more than we'd like to admit. In fact, some in the room right now are, are filled with an immense shame because you've given into temptation so many times. Others may be sitting here have completely seared your consciences. And so you don't even think about temptation or care about it anymore. I find it interesting that the very first thing that Jesus does in his public ministry is withdraw from the crowds and battle temptation. Don't you? In Matthew and Mark and Luke's gospel, the very first thing Jesus does after his baptism, after his, his public proclamation that he is here, is withdraw from people and battle temptation in the wilderness. But it's actually good news that he does because Jesus shows us that the temptations that overwhelm us don't overwhelm him. They're conquered by him. Let's read together Matthew chapter 4, the verse, first 17 verses. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourselves down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, 
And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, of all the stories that we could have picked from Matthew's gospel, and there's a lot of good ones, why pick this one? Why start here? Here's what I want you to see this morning. If you miss everything else, make sure you get this. In all the ways that Israel failed to be the people of God, Jesus succeeds. And he does so not just for Israel, but for you. Because of that, we can trust him as our sympathetic high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted. We can see him as the perfect example on how to resist and overcome temptation ourselves. And we can be encouraged that the same Holy Spirit that allowed him to resist, now dwells in us so that we can resist. Excuse me. Getting better at the mute button, though, aren't I? Maybe I need a tropical vacation or something, but we got a lot of ground to cover if we're going to cover all of that. Immediately after being baptized by John the baptizer, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove, and God the Father speaks audibly for everybody around to hear, And this is what he says. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the very next words that we read after this declaration of God the Father is this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted or to be tested. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't circumstantial. This was planned. This happened intentionally. He was led to be tempted. Now the eternal son of God finally come into the world to fulfill all of these promises doesn't make his first public act randomly. He plans it. But it's also a bit confusing, isn't it? Why would you immediately leave the public eye after such a miraculous supernatural event? God speaks audibly for everyone there to listen. This is my son. I'm well pleased with my son. But then he leaves for 40 days. He withdraws into the wilderness for 40 days. Why would he do that? Because in every way that Israel failed to be the people of God... Jesus is now going to succeed so that he becomes the new Israel. I'm going to show you this particular passage, but then we're going to look at all four chapters of the, first, or of, the, of the gospel of Matthew to show that Matthew is intentional in every story he tells to get us to see this. So let's keep going. Verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You think? Right? And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So after 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, not eating, 
Jesus is hungry. Now, we would assume that Jesus drank water because it tells us he's hungry, not that he's hungry and thirsty. Some would see this as a supernatural fast, but actually, a a few studies have shown you can actually go for about 40 days without food, without any permanent damage, depending on the shape you're in and all that stuff. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is hungry. He wants to eat. And so the tempter shows up and tempts him with this, but the first words out of the devil's mouth, Satan's mouth, is this, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are, what had God the Father just said immediately before this? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But Satan, the tempter, goes right after Jesus' identity as the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, prove it. Command these stones to become bread. Now there's a lot more going on in this temptation than simply Jesus being hungry. He is hungry. He's now been in the wilderness for 40 days. Now, as we've gone through the the storyline, the thread of the Bible, can we think of anything that has to do with 40 and the wilderness? The people of God, Israel, wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And, And what's maybe one word that would describe their overarching attitude the whole time? Grumbling. Whining, right? Not trusting God, even though he miraculously provides for them over and over and over again. And what does he provide for them every single day? Bread. Manna from heaven. The tempter is telling Jesus, back up this claim that you are the son of God by doing what God did for his people. But Jesus quotes in response to the tempter, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where Moses is teaching the people, man does not live by bread alone. The full quotation is, and remember, this is Deuteronomy, so the people have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, they're now at the edge of the promised land, and Moses is instructing them these final words as they recommit themselves before they enter into the land, and he, Moses says this, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God's purpose for, t- for his people in Moses' day in providing this miraculous manna from heaven was to teach them two things. First, is that he is their provision. He will provide for them. He will take care of his people. But then second, you don't live by bread alone. You need more than just bread to truly experience the life that God has created. In fact, you don't live by bread alone, but you live by the words of God's mouth, the words that God gives. In fact, his words ought to be just as significant to them as bread is for their stomachs and their bodies. Jesus quotes back to the tempter, God's word is enough for me. His affirmation of me is sufficient. His provision for me is adequate for me. I don't need to prove myself to you. That's what Jesus says. I'm going to listen to what he says about me rather than what you say or tempt me with. And what does God say? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now I'm guessing that 
None of us in this room have ever been tempted to miraculously turn stones into bread. Maybe some of you have. I would love to hear that story. But I bet we've wrestled with struggling with God for our provision, haven't we? I bet we've all wrestled with trying to prove ourselves by what we do rather than by listening to the words of God and what he says about us. I bet we've all tried to build an identity on the basis of what we can prove to others rather than simply resting in what God the Father says about us. Now, ironically, later in Jesus' ministry, he does miraculously provide bread for God's people in the wilderness as he feeds the 5,000. But he doesn't need to do that to prove himself to Satan in this way. Which leads us into the second temptation. Again, Satan takes aim at Jesus' identity as the Son of God, only this time it has less to do with providing bread and more to do with doing something spectacular to show me who you are or to show everybody else who you are. The devil thinks, I can quote scripture too. And so he goes on in verse 5. Then the devil took to throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now this is most likely a visionary experience, not the devil actually taking him to the temple. And the tempter leans again into the phrase, if you are the son of God. But this time the temptation has to do with doing something spectacular to show it. If you're the son of God, the Messiah like you say you are, give the people bread to eat. Give the people a spectacular display of your power so that they will know who you really are. And then the devil quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What we find here is that the the devil can misquote scripture with the best of them. See, Psalm 91 is all about the people of God making God their refuge and their fortress in this crazy world. And the promise is given to those who have made the Lord their dwelling place, their resting place, that no evil will befall you, that he will protect you. But do you see how the devil misses the point of that? He he essentially turns this beautiful promise of God's protection in a crazy world into a, you can do whatever you want. You can jump off the pinnacle of the temple and nothing will happen to you. See, this is what God's word says. And so Jesus responds to his misquote by quoting scripture yet again. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is quoting again from Deuteronomy chapter 6 this time, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Jesus says, we're not to test God like the people of God did at Massa when they complained about not having water in the desert and in the wilderness right after God had brought them through the Red Sea. See, at Massa, if you remember, God commanded Moses to strike the rock, and after he struck the rock with his staff, water poured out, and the people were more than provided for. Jesus says, we're not to test God like that, like they did and failed. If you're the Son of God, if you're the Messiah, then use your power for you to eat your fill, to feed the masses, to do something spectacular so that everyone will know who you are. Bible scholars Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew in their book, The Drama of Scripture, it's a great overview of the story of the Bible, 
say that the first temptations of Satan have to do with the way in which Jesus will be defined as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And the first way is the way of the populist, to give the people bread, to give them what they want, and they'll love you. The second is the way of the spectacle, to wow them, to show them your spectacular power so that they'll stand in awe and know who you are. In light of this, the third temptation makes a ton of sense. It's the way of the violent or the political revolutionary. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Again, this has to be a vision because there's no mountain that you can go to to see all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan says, it'll all be yours. I'll give you the power to take it by force if you bow down and if you worship me. Now, I got to believe that this has to be both the easiest and the hardest of the temptations for Jesus. On the one hand, we know Jesus isn't going to bow down to Satan. And yet the path laid before him in this moment is so much easier than the path that he's committed to walk, to bring about the salvation of the peoples. Imagine <clears throat> Jesus being glorified without first being humiliated. It might be good news for him, but it would not be good news for us. This would have been to turn away from the plan that he and the Father had promised for thousands of years. This would be to grab power rather than to pour out his life. And make no mistake about it, Jesus could have walked this path. He had the power to do so. He could have wiped the floor with Rome. He had a far superior army at his disposal. But that wasn't the plan. His plan was to redeem and restore and forgive and bring God's kingdom in a far gentler way. Now, in order to do that, Jesus would have to show God's power through weakness with the kind of strength that would resist the urge to step down from the cross and instead bear the wrath of God in our place. See, when all this is over, we read, verse 11, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I don't know if you ever do this, but we often picture Jesus as this superhuman type figure. And if you do that, then this testing or this tempting doesn't really affect him. It just kind of glances off him. He just brushes it off. But the picture we're given here of Jesus, not only during but afterwards, is not a superhuman brushing the dust off his sleeve, but a weakened man who now needs to be ministered to by the angels because it's taken something out of him. Nor is this the last time that Jesus would face these temptations. He would face them all throughout his ministry. See, we see him later on in the Garden of Gethsemane pleading with the Father, if there is any other way, I'll take it. But not my will, your will be done. I'm sure after feeding the 5,000s, when they, when they rushed to make him king, it would have been easy to keep the bread flowing, to keep the fish coming, to give the people the Messiah that they wanted. It might have been easy for him to use his miraculous power once and for all in a way that a watching world would just not be able to argue as he incinerates a tree before him, as he flies. 
Or at least when you're going to calm the waves and the sea, make sure that there's more people around to see it. But he didn't. I'm sure it was tempting from time to time to make use of the angels that were at his disposal to call on and speed up the process or remove the opposition. But he didn't. Because his kingdom was going to be different. We read about the kingdom that he proclaims in the next five verses, starting in verse 12. Now when he heard that John, his cousin, had been arrested, the baptizer, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus withdraws from the epicenter of the Jewish faith, Jerusalem, in order to minister in Galilee, a rather obscure place, both to fulfill the specific prophecy about him from Isaiah, but also that he would be accessible to the Gentiles, even if they'd have to wait a little bit until after the resurrection. Those dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. I'm sure glad that Jesus took into account Gentiles, aren't you? I think most of us are them. It's good news. This isn't just all about Israel. It's about us too. Matthew summarizes his message in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. It has come into your midst. God's rule and reign in this world is back. And God's rule and reign wouldn't be the populist way, giving people what they wanted, bread to eat and comfort. It wouldn't be the way of the spectacle, wowing his followers with crazy displays of power that takes their breath away. It wouldn't be at the the kingdom of military might or political maneuverings. No, the kingdom at hand would be the inbreaking of heaven to earth. It would begin to reverse all of the effects of sin and the curse in ordinary but supernatural ways. He would show those closest to him that indeed he has the power of God, but he's going to use it in such a way to restore the brokenness of this world. At the end of Matthew 4, we read in verses 23, 24, and 25 a summary of his ministry. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan." So Jesus shows that he has God's power, but he shows how he's going to use God's power to restore all the things the enemy has broken. See, one of the things that all of us agree on is that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. You and I are not what we should be. We are living under the effects of the curse of sin as we experience death and sickness and pain and grief. When we look at someone and we're like, why were they born like that? Or 
Why can't they walk? Or why can't they conceive a child? It doesn't make sense. And what we see in Jesus' ministry is this glimpse of how God is going to use his power to restore and to heal all of the effects of sin. Now, we, we wish that he would do it universally, globally, but he does it in such a way that only those with the right kind of eyes to see and ears to hear will actually grasp it. Now, at this point, I want to pull back a little bit from this individual story in Matthew 4, and I want to show you the first four chapters and how they're just beating the gong over and over again. Jesus is the new Israel. If you open to Matthew chapter 1, you see that it starts with a genealogy, and most Americans are like, yay! Wow, what an exciting way to kick off the New Testament. But what he does in showing this genealogy is that Jesus is connected to Abraham and to David, meaning the promises that God gave to Abraham that he would bless him and through him would bless all of the peoples of the earth, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And David as well, that one of his descendants would rule and reign on the throne of Israel forever. Jesus is that king and next we read the story of how Jesus was born to a virgin, how he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, as promised by the prophets. Then we're told that the wise men, Gentiles from afar, come and pay their respects to this newborn king, just like the Gentiles began to do at the high point of the kingdom of Israel under Solomon, as they came and marveled at his wisdom. See, God is going to, through Israel, be a blessing to all of the peoples of the earth. Then we're told the story of King Herod, who feeling threatened by the news of this coming king, tries to wipe out all the baby boys in Bethlehem, just like a pharaoh had 1,500 years before, ordered the execution of all of the Hebrew baby boys. Yet just as Moses was saved from this slaughter, so Jesus is preserved, ironically, by fleeing where? To Egypt. And Jesus and his family sojourned for a short time in Egypt, just like who did? God's people. And out of Egypt, he calls his son, just like he called his people out of Egypt 1,500 years before. But when he returns, it's not to the center of the Jewish world, but rather to Nazareth in Galilee, being called the Nazarene. And then John the baptizer takes up the prophetic ministry of Elijah to point ahead to one who was to come, the Messiah. And Jesus identifies with God's people by being baptized in the Jordan River. What did God do when he brought his people out of Egypt? He brought them through the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians 10 calls that like a baptism through the waters. And then the next generation under Moses, when they went into the promised land, what did they pass through? They passed through the Jordan River at flood stage. Ironically, the same exact place that Jesus is when he is baptized, identifying with God's people. And then after that, he is led into the wilderness for 40 days. And in every place where Israel failed and grumbled and didn't trust God, what does Jesus do? He fully trusts God's and he wins. Unlike Adam and Eve who couldn't resist the temptation of the tempter, Jesus does. And then when Jesus starts his ministry and begins to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. He goes to Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem and Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Bible scholars agree that this was actually the original land that the people would have inhabited as they came into the promised land under Joshua. What is Matthew doing with all of these stories? 
He is showing us over and over and over away that Jesus is the true and the greater Israel. In all the places that Israel failed to be the people of God faithfully, Jesus succeeds. He's the seed of Abraham, the greater King David, the one that all of the nations will come seeking. He came from Egypt, passed through the waters, was tempted in the wilderness and overcame, and now inhabits the land. And if you think the symbolism is awesome there, then the rest of Matthew might blow your mind. Often people say Matthew's gospel was written primarily to a Jew in mind. Chapter 5 begins the teaching of Jesus, and Matthew's gospel is organized around five sections of Jesus' teaching and a bunch of stories in between. Now, can you think of five books of teaching that were significant to the Jewish people? Maybe the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, the very foundation for their faith, the law. What Matthew is saying to the Jews of his day and to us who have eyes to see and ears to hear is that Jesus is not only the new Israel, but he is the true and greater Moses. That the people of God are no longer going to be defined solely by their ethnicity and their heritage. They are now going to be defined by him. And faith in him. Amen? Amen. So what do we learn from today's passage that's practical? In all the ways that Israel fails to be the people of God, Jesus succeeds. And he does so not just for Israel, but for you and for me. Because you and I need a savior. He is that savior. Because you and I have not overcome temptation He did. Now because of that, we can trust him as our sympathetic high priest who knows about temptation and has overcome it. We can see him as an example to follow on how to resist temptation ourselves, and we can be encouraged that the same Holy Spirit that was empowering him as a man to overcome temptation now dwells in us so that we can overcome temptation. So, My first point, before we get to anywhere else of application, is have you trusted in Jesus to be your Lord, to be your Savior? Have you believed the good news of the gospel, that he lived the life that you should have lived but didn't? He died the death that you deserve to die, and he rose in victory over the grave so that by faith in his name, all that he accomplished is credited to your account So that when you go before your job interview with God Almighty, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? You get judged on the basis of Jesus' resume in that moment. I don't know about you guys, that's really good news to me. Because I have fallen far, far short of the standard that God has for me. And you have as well, let's be honest. That's why we need Jesus to succeed in all the places that we failed See, we tap into that not by moral improvement or by convincing God that that we're better now. We tap into that by admitting our weakness before God, our sin, and choosing to trust that what Jesus did, he did for us. Trusting completely in him for that great day of judgment. And God saves us by grace through faith in what he has done. If you're here this morning, if you never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, today can be the day. 
We're going to have a baptism later where someone's going to publicly proclaim their faith and allegiance to Jesus, and we're going to celebrate. But if you're here this morning, that actually could be you too. And maybe for the first time, it's, it's like, I get it. That's, that's what the Bible's about. It's not just about trying harder and doing better and improving ourselves so that God's like, yeah, I'll let you in. It's throwing ourselves on the mercy and the grace of Jesus and letting what he did be sufficient for us. That's good news. Second, Jesus is a faithful and sympathetic high priest. He gets us. I'm guessing that none of us here have been tempted to turn stones into bread or dive off buildings trusting that God's angels will save us. Or in these temptations, Satan hasn't offered us all of the kingdoms of the world and its glory. And so these temptations feel a little distant and far, but I'm guessing you've been tempted to doubt what God says about you. I'm guessing that you've been tempted to follow your own plan to provide provision for yourself rather than God's plan. I'm guessing that maybe you've come up with all kinds of elaborate tests for the Lord to prove himself to you and say, God, if you're really real. And I'm guessing you've passed, you've, you've pursued the path of trying to make everyone like you. The point of all these stories is not, just to show, is not to show us that we're exactly like Jesus, but that Jesus has faced the temptation that we've faced even greater and has overcome them. And Jesus didn't face this as the unassailable God-man, but actually Philippians 2 says just the opposite. Though he, Jesus, was God, he did not think of the quality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. It was so that he could be not only our victorious Savior, but also a sympathetic high priest. And in the book of Hebrews, it describes Jesus this way. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, because of what he's done, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Whatever temptation you're facing, <clears throat> you are not alone and you are not unique. Jesus knows the temptations of man. He is sympathetic, but he has overcome them for you. This means then that your status before God isn't dependent upon your performance or your perfection, but his. Now, does this mean that we don't need to resist temptation as believers in Jesus or followers of Jesus? Not at all. It just means that your salvation is not dependent upon your record or your performance, but rather your faith in his record. So what about temptation? How do we fight it? Well, we fight it the same way that Jesus did. In the story, we see an example of how to fight temptation. This is the third point. When Jesus was tempted, he called to mind God's word. And he spoke it out loud to Satan, to himself, to remind himself. There's power in God's word. He was steeped in the scriptures. He had memorized the scriptures. He knew what they said and what they meant, unlike Satan. So that in these moments of temptation, when battling the lies or the counterfeit of what was being offered, he knew the truth. And he spoke it. Do you have a plan to hide the scriptures in your heart? To know them? 
to memorize them. Now, some of you guys are like, you know, Pastor Kyle, memorization and scripture, that's not really my thing. I'm not very good at it. I bet, you, I bet you are. I bet you could quote a whole slew of movie lines at me. I, I bet your favorite professional athlete, you might have a few of their stats memorized. I bet your favorite book, you know just everything about. The thing is, we, we tend to memorize and, and saturate ourselves with the things that we're into. We just do that. Be into God's word. Be into God's word. It will help you. Now, this isn't a foolproof way. Satan had memorized scripture too. He just didn't understand it. Bible memory was something that many of the early Jews who rejected Jesus were really good at. No, you don't just need Bible memory. You actually need the Holy Spirit who was helping Jesus along the way. He was leading Jesus. He was empowering Jesus. But now that Jesus is risen, he sent his Holy Spirit to us to help. Next week, we're going to look at John 14, a passage on the helper. I want to invite you back to see in a more full way what the Holy Spirit does and how he helps us to battle temptation and to live the life that God has called us to live. But get this. The same spirit that dwelt in and empowered Jesus is now available to you so that you can lean into the power of the Holy Spirit to resist sin. The Apostle Paul encourages the Corinthian believers with this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Temptation is guaranteed to not be overwhelming because God is faithful to you. You won't be tempted beyond your ability, meaning you have a new power at work within you to be able to resist and overcome, to resist in a way that the Old Testament believers couldn't. Whatever the temptation, there is a way out. There is a way of escape. And so when facing temptation this week, pause and think, what does God's word have to say about this? aligning me with truth, you see? Because the best temptations are lies. They're counterfeits that sell a bill of goods that they can't possibly deliver. And we buy them over and over and over again. So we need something to anchor us to what is actually true and speak truth into those lies. When facing temptation, ask, what does God's word say? And what does God's word say about me? It says, you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from his mouth. See, in all the ways that you fail, Jesus succeeds. If you're honest with yourself, you're worse than you thought you were. But in that moment, you realize that Jesus is a far more wonderful Savior than you ever dared hope. So lean into the Holy Spirit's power like he did and live in the greatest freedom imaginable, wholly submitted to God's word into life. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have come into this world and overcome temptation where we've failed. Thank you, God, that you give us your spirit so that this is not a completely defeatist battle, but there's a new power at work in us to resist and to overcome. Would you convict us? Would you encourage us? Would you give us the strength to fight against the, the lies that try to seduce us, that invite us to trust a far inferior Savior, that tempt us to believe that what I really need is to go outside of what God has said in order to be happy.
God, these things, they promise freedom, but they give us only bondage. Would you help us to overcome temptation? And in the moments that we don't, would you give us eyes to look to Jesus and in that moment see that he's far more wonderful than we ever dared hope? We ask this in his beautiful name. Amen.